Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Great, thanks a lot. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, looking forward to these wonderful sessions. My topic, um, uh, which is about the molecular basis of speech. So, uh, Rusty mentioned one big hope or technological advance in the last decade has our amazingly increased ability to read DNA. So certainly, um, for these old questions, what is unique about humans, or especially about the human brain, uh, genome sequencing has certainly put, put out a big hope in order to explain that. So there's this famous figure that we differ by 1%. So since we have the human genome and the chimpanzee genome sequenced, we can just simply compare how actually we do differ. A hu one human and one chimp genome differs by about 35 million nucleotide substitutions which makes this famous 1% difference. Um, these are not the only differences, genetic differences. There are also insertions and deletions of pieces of DNA making up uh, five millions altogether of various lengths, can be rather big um, in size, up to millions of bases. And for the part of the genome, in addition, various rearrangements of chromosomes, for example, our chromosome 2 is a fusion of two ancestral chromosomes and on the part we understand best, maybe um, the protein coding part, you have altogether 60,000 amino acid substitutions or two amino acid differences per protein on average. So just to give you a feeling about some numbers that we actually have in hand, um, a catalog where we differ on a genomic level to our closest relatives. And together with, um, with the genomes that are available from closest out groups like the orangutan or the rhesus monkey, we can actually have a pretty precise catalog of genetic changes that took place during this period of about six million years and because the difference between chimps and a human is 40 million, 35 million substitutions plus 5 million insertions and deletions, each of them has the same amount of time um, behind us, making that about on approximately 20 million genetic changes. So 1% doesn't seem much, but 20 million does. Um, and one can be optimistic or pessimistic about these numbers. But what I think is, after all, remarkable, um, it's, it's, it's a space. It's a limited space, right? And, um, but it's also pretty clear that um, the patterns we see is actually overall, um, and uh, Todd already mentioned that there might be one signature of, for example, brain-related metabolism that uh, might be more changed on this lineage. Um, and I do injustice to a huge number of studies that try to point out particular features of genomic evolution that happened during that time. It's still true, I think, or fair to say, that by large, these patterns we see in genomic changes, so in which proteins it changes and, and how strong it changes in regulatory, whether it's structural regions of the genome, are typical for a primate or a mammalian genome. There's, of course, much to learn about it, but it's also clear that we, if we want to make a link between the genotypic changes and the phenotypic changes we're interested in, we have a, a pretty severe statistical problem in the sense that all these things are confounded or totally correlated, right? So in order to make a link between particular genetic changes and particular phenotypes, we need to add information. There's nothing we can do. Where does this information can come from? Um, one type of information can come from analyzing patterns of of DNA sequence evolution that might point to parts of our genome or to particular genes that have experienced positive selection. 
meaning changes in those genes or in these regions of the genome um, had had some uh, selective advantage during human evolution. The other thing is, of course, that we know particular phenotypic changes, although much less than previously thought, but just as heard in the previous talk, um, we have ways to actually have a much better characterization of which phenotypes precisely actually did change. And then, of course, thirdly, we increase our knowledge on a daily basis, I would say, about how particular genes functions in which contexts. So I think these three areas can be used in order to form specific hypotheses about specific genetic changes that have an influence on particular specific phenotypes during human evolution. And with usual with hypotheses, I think one has to be really careful in order to lay out the evidence. Of course, already, again, as mentioned before, there are several interesting uh, changes in the phenotype um, we might want to look at, like the maximum lifespan is one that I think is really tremendous. One thing is certainly language, but another thing that is part of language is our ability to, to do what I now try to do, namely to uh, vocalize uh, pretty voluntarily, at least largely. Um, <laughs> Um, meaning our ability to have speech. And if you, I mean, if, you, if you see children, how they pick up and try hard to actually babble and vocalize, and if you compare that to chimpanzees, even if they're raised within human context, that's a huge, huge, huge difference. And it's hard to imagine that such a difference would not have some genetic basis to it. In order to have a link to genes, so, so here we have a, a phenotypic change, and now we need some gene function associations. And um, for speech, or even language, there are hardly any. Um, but the most well-studied and more, most clear link to that comes from a family that's called the KE family that has, a, um, that has a disease that is called developmental verbal dyspraxia. Uh, it has been described in the 90s for the first time. And it's a large family of, where half of the family members have a pretty distinct uh, problem in learning to speak. So what you can see is what, what you should have heard is um, three people of this family that are affected and despite their age um, are clearly very, very um, impaired in their ability to speak. Um, and this has been examined on a pretty detailed level, um, especially by the lab of um, Farhani Varga Kardam in London. It's pretty clear that this, that this disease affects receptive and expressive verbal abilities on all, all kinds of levels, especially those where it has to do with the processing of complex words and non-words. So asking them to um, pronounce hippopotamus is a pretty hard thing. Um, and I only can do it without mistakes because I always use the same example. Um, uh, and also other orofacial movements like uh, stick out your tongue, lick over your lips, um, they are impaired. And MRI studies and PET studies show that this has a clear... Um, that there, this is associated with clear neurological features. One particular um, pictures example are, as usual, fMRI scans. So this is a task where the participants are asked to think of a word when they hear a particular um, other word. So they hear bathroom and they think towel, and you can make sure that everybody understands the tasks. And around Baraka's area, just has been introduced by Jim, um, is the area that is known to light up in these kind of tasks in unaffected individuals. Interestingly, the affected group shows, although it can also do the task, a pretty um, diverse um, activity in the right and left hemisphere of the cortex, um, sparing uh, uh, the area around Broca's area. So maybe 
having, making the clearest example that the feature or that what goes wrong in these um, affected family members is something that acts on a higher neurological level and is necessary in order to develop normal speech and language. Um, more than 10 years ago, Simon Fisher and colleagues um, mapped the genetic cause for that because they found an unrelated boy with a chromal breakpoint in the, in the region that has a break in the gene that was then called FOXP2 for forecat protein 2. And they then were able to, to sequence a family in the same gene and found that all the family members have one copy of the FOXP2 gene that has a mutation in this DNA binding domain of this transcription factor. And later on, people also found other patients with similar phenotypes that had a stop mutation um, in this gene, making it pretty clear that you need two functional genes, um, two functional FOXP2 genes, in order to have normal speech and language abilities. And it's still, unfortunately, the only single gene that is so well connected to, to that phenotype. I would love to have hundreds of them, although it would make my world certainly more complicated. Um, but still, yeah, it's the only single gene that is so clearly and well-studied linked to our ability to speak. So obviously then, what, what, what lacks is um, how does this gene evolve? Because we want to, after all, make not a claim about a function, but a claim about uh, the basis of evolution. So it's a very, very conserved transcription factor differing only at three positions of uh, the 715s. So there are three differences between mouse and humans, making it among the 5% most conserved proteins you have between those two species. But interestingly, two of those happened just in the last 6 million years after we split from the chimp. And this general pattern holds up if you compare several primates or um, even recently much more mammals so during human evolution, FOXP2 protein changed more than you expect for such a conserved protein. This is per se, especially if you would now be a statistician and say, well, but there are 20,000 proteins, you need to correct for multiple testing, out it goes, right? But as I say, we need to add information from different fields in order to make one hypothesis in this case um, from these evidence I just showed you that maybe these two amino acid changes in FOXP2 contributed to our ability to have speech and language. And the big question, I think maybe the biggest question in the field of uh, human evolutionary genetics is, what can you do at that stage, right? Um, because a, a normal geneticist would make, choose an organism where it can cross um, individuals in order to separate all these different genetic changes from the different phenotypic changes. But obviously, um, out of various reasons, this is not an option if you study human evolution. It's also not an option um, to genetically engineer humans and chimpanzees for technical, ethical, financial reasons. So those two normally taken routes are certainly out of the window. There's one interesting aspect um, I really like because we're so many humans that all mutations that are somehow compatible with life exist several hundred folds on this planet. So you can calculate that given the mutation rate of these positions, Every generation of 12 billion chromosomes, you get 200 chromosomes born that have the reversed mutation back to the chimp. But obviously, this is also not a good project if you think about a postdoc project um, <laughs> to find these 200. But eventually, maybe, especially if our capabilities to sequence DNA might increase even much more, um, we might find some individuals that actually are the natural experiment that we cannot do in the lab. Yeah, and then you can do what, what, what any biologist or biochemist can do. You can find a model system, either in vitro, study the biochemistry, or do it in cell lines, 
But unfortunately for the trade we are interested in, there are not very good biochemical or even cell line models. That's probably true for many of the phenotypes we're interested in in human evolution. They involve rather complex organs, especially the brain. Um, and it's pretty hard to model the brain in, on a cell line. Um, so the biggest, the, the main organism we have for modeling that is the mouse, right? So, um, and I think also in the, also in the midterm or even long-term future, it will be our only chance to realistically approach these questions because we will hardly be able to, at least on a large scale, to do that in any primates, not to talk about the ethical problems um, that might cause. So what we did, we made a mouse um, that had the human version of FOXP2. Uh, and you can read many details in that paper that is now two years old. So how we do it, that's kind of standard technology. So this is a gene, the FOXP2 gene in the mouse or in the human doesn't really matter because it's, it's the same structure. And these two amino acid changes that we're interested in are luckily in one exon. So we can make a construct which knocks in these two amino acid changes in the normal endogenous FOXP2 gene of the mouse. And then we can cross these mice and compare litter mates that either have two versions of the humanized version of this gene um, or carry the wild-type version of this gene. So we can, in a mouse background, model the effects of what happens to a mouse if it has these two amino acid changes introduced. So, yeah, so these mice are humanized, but only for these two amino acid changes, right? Anything, any other properties, of course, in the FOXP2 gene itself, but, I mean also in the rest of the mouse genome, are still mouse. Um, but that is, after all, the hypothesis we want to test, right? What do these two amino acid changes do? And this is quite different from the normal version, what people usually do in order to study the disease, namely destroy a gene, as also happens for the speech impairment in humans, where you have one of the two copies destroyed. If you destroy both copies, by the way, the mouse dies with three weeks of age and is pretty in a desperate state. So that will not help you much to understand the deficit in humans. But of course, how speech-impaired mice look like um, is pretty relevant to the question of how speech, humanized speech mice might look like. So these are the two mice model system we have. So again, if you're kind of pessimistic, you say, well, that's it. Um, but obviously, if you think about even a second longer, no, no one claims from a model system that it fully recapitulates that what you want to model, right? I mean, that's what a model system is about. After all, these mice are still quite normal mice. Um, <clears throat> maybe I didn't listen carefully enough. Maybe they don't live long enough. But um, clearly, they don't talk, right? Nobody would claim that one, two amino acid changes would, would uh, be able to, to make such a complex phenotype like speech, right? I mean, that was totally ridiculous. But what you can do, of course, is um, you can look at many different levels of that mouse, uh, physiological level, molecular levels, histological levels, and try to understand what features do change compared to the speech-impaired mouse and try to make sense um, what happens in that, in that mouse model. And uh, we spent the last five years pretty extensively doing all these kind of different levels. Obviously, there's many things one can do. I tried to just walk you briefly to some of the main findings. So one important finding is because FOXP2 is not ex only expressed in the brain. It's like most of the genes where the, we just have 20,000 protein coding genes. So they have to do many different jobs, and that's probably FOXP2 is no exception. It it, it's necessary in many different tissues, probably during development, probably also 
in adult stages, so it's expressed in the, in the gut, and it's expressed in different neurons of the brain, not in the hippocampus, for example, but in pukinia cells, and medium spiny neurons of the stratum, um, in heart cells. So what is important is that our mice, our humanized mice, are still very normal mice. They're pretty healthy, and we scanned many, many parameters measuring mouse physiology in the German mouse clinic, and they show no difference that is significant except for significantly but slightly decreased exploratory behavior. We find less dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, um, tissue levels, especially in the basal ganglia, so a structure of the brain that I come to in a second. We find that humanized mice have longer dendritic trees in neurons of the stratum of the cortex and the thalamus where FOXP2 is expressed, but interestingly not in Purkinje cells where FOXP2 is also expressed. Um, during synaptic plasticity studies, we find that in the stratum, but not in the Purkinje cells, we find a stronger synaptic plasticity, long-term depression, a form of synaptic plasticity. On the behavioral level, we find that pups vocalize with slightly lower pitch, which is kind of cool if you study speech, but if you think about a second more, it's pretty hard to interpret. Um, and recently we did, uh, together with Anne Grable at the MIT, um, learning experiments that target especially those, those regions that are affected in a conditional TMAS task. And they show actually faster learning behavior. Interestingly, the speech-impaired mice, they show more phenotypes, so they're also healthy, they do fine, but show a variety of subtle significant differences in lung function and metabolism, maybe showing that FOXP2 is expressed in many places, and in most places you can do well with just one copy, but you see subtle effects if you measure carefully. They have slightly more dopamine in the basal ganglia. They have a reduced synaptic plasticity. They have a general normal pop vocalization. And they have impairments in similar, not identical tasks that involve motor skill learning. So what we currently think where we are is that humanized FOXP2 affects corticobasal ganglia circuits, which are circuits that go from the cortex to the basal ganglia over the thalamus back to it, which are important um, which are affected in Parkinson's disease, important in Huntington's disease, and are thought especially be important for um, reward-based learning. And in these cells, we see effects of humanized FOXP2 that go partly in the opposite direction, the speech-impaired mice, so that we conclude currently that the two amino acid changes affect these particular cortico-basal ganglia circuits and affect them in a way so that the humanized mice show gain of function phenotype in a subset of the affected phenotype in the heterozygous knockouts. And more generally, that maybe this mouse model is um, some hope, at least, to study some aspects of human brain evolution uh, in a mouse model. So with that, thank you for your patience and my mice for their patience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.